Good morning, Living Water. Good to see everybody out today. My name is Mike. If you have a Bible with you, if you would take that out now, we're going to dive right in. We're continuing our study in the book of Esther, and we are going to cover all of chapter 3 today. But we'll begin just by reading the first four verses. So when you're ready, if you're able, if you would please stand for the hearing of God's word. If you need help finding Esther, you flop your Bible open to the middle, you find Psalms, go left, Job, then Esther. Esther chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Let's pray. Lord God, I come to you, as Ms. Diane said, with hands raised to surrender to you this service. This service is yours. We thank you for the opportunity to to sing songs of praise to you, to open up your word to hear from you, to give towards the work that you are doing in our world. And I just ask right now, Lord, that you bless the preaching of your word, that we would leave this place looking more and more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Stories. Stories are powerful. Stories are very powerful. We love stories, don't we? Even from our youth, we get uh, our attention captured and we become captivated by a good story, whether that be fact or fiction. Personally, I'm more drawn to the fact-based stories. Uh, For example, last week when Pastor Ben stood up here and he said his family and him were in the Baltimore area, they're walking up to a mall And outside the mall, there was a man named Michael sitting there, and they approached him and spoke to him. I immediately lean in. I'm wondering, who's Michael? what's What's going to ensue as he begins to tell the story? Because stories are powerful, and they are memorable. And what we have here today is a story. This is the story of the book of Esther, and it is also powerful, and memorable. But I want to remind each of us here today that of something we already know, I think we know this, but the events that we're reading here in the book of Esther that took place some 2,500 years ago in Persia are just as real as the events when Pastor Ben and his family walk up to a mall and interact with a man named Michael just last year. Both equally true. And just because Esther is this literary work from antiquity, we ought not lump it in with, you know, 
other fairy tales and fantasy and fiction. No, it's an historical narrative. And I think maybe this, we have a tendency to do this because perhaps when we were younger, maybe we got introduced to the story of Esther as told through some vegetables, <laughs> namely cucumbers and tomatoes. So this is a friendly reminder. These are real people in a real place, real life, doing real things, making real decisions. They carry with them real consequences. This is not made up. And so I offer you today a mild warning. Mild warning, because we're going to be confronted with truth. And it shouldn't shock you, because every time you open your Bible, you're confronted with truth, with a capital T. See, the Bible speaks on reality. And, and we know reality, it's truth is that which corresponds to reality. And you don't have to look very far to see the reality is often ugly, harsh, and difficult. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that. It faces it. It deals with those things head on. And that's what we have today. It's the most honest book ever written. And so I would just draw your attention to the title of this sermon. It's The Plot to Destroy, Kill, and Annihilate. That's not me trying to be overly dramatic, you know, you know, trying to like stir up, you know, be provocative and use inflammatory language. No, that's simply a copy and paste job straight from the text. And we will see it as we proceed. But if you're a first-time guest here today, you might not have expected Esther, and we're already into chapter 3, so let me uh, get you caught up. Welcome, by the way, if you are here. Setting, I said, is Persia, roughly 2,500 years ago. King Ahasuerus is on the throne, and his wife, the queen, is a Jew, and her name is Esther. Esther has a cousin, and his name is Mordecai. He's more like an adopted father, if you follow the story from, from the first chapter. But this guy, Mordecai, overhears in chapter 2 a plot to kill the king. And he doesn't sit on that. He acts upon it, and he gives that that information to Esther, who then in turn gives it to King Ahasuerus in Mordecai's name, okay? And then this investigation ensues. They identify these two guys, figure out who they are, and then subsequently kill them. And that's where we left off last week. That's the, the end of chapter 2. So we begin today in chapter 3, and we read about a man who's being raised up. He's being elevated to an exalted position. And you might think, well, that's got to be Mordecai, right? No. It's this man named Haman. Haman the Agagite. Now, I don't even need to tell you this guy is bad news. I mean, the name alone, Haman the Agagite. I mean, it's just, as one preacher said, it sounds like a, you're a mouthful of gravel. Agagite. And I learned this week that you cannot say Agagite without sounding like Kramer from Seinfeld. <laughs> it's happened to me all week. So this, this name, it's like you, ha you have to say the name like you're in a car, veering off the road, driving on the rumble strips, right? Haman, the Agagite, son of Hamadatha. I mean, it's this choppy, nothing melodic. 
about it at all. It's rough. And Haman is rough, as we will see. So Haman has a throne, and people were commanded to bow down to Haman, as instructed by the king. But there's one guy who doesn't, and his name is Mordecai. And the question is, why? That's the question everybody asks. Why? He was even asked in the text. And commentators actually are pretty widespread here. I actually read multiple sources that said Mordecai should have bowed down. He's being bitter. He, he didn't get promoted, so he's kind of sour, and he refuses to bow down. I don't buy that. Uh, I, I don't think it explains what's in the text. It just doesn't seem to be the character of Mordecai. But you might say, well, Mike, the answer is right in the text, because at the end of verse 4, for he told them that he was a Jew. But I'm here to tell you, that's not a definitive answer, and I'm going to show you why. See, some say Haman was set up on this throne and he was to be worshipped as a god. So this bowing down would be worship. And Mordecai, being a good Jew, well, he's not going to give his worship to another. And so there, that's the reason that he didn't bow down. That might be, and, there, and these reasons I'm going to give you are not mutually exclusive, this one and the next one. So it could be a combination, but I don't really think that's what's going on. I'm going to show you. So for one, good Jews throughout the Old Testament bow down to kings and others. I'll give you some examples. 1 Samuel 20, verse 41. David fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times to Jonathan. 1 Samuel 24, 8. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 23, And when he, that's Nathan, came in before the king, he bowed before the king, that would be David, with his face to the ground. And in Persia, bowing at this time, this was a sign of honor and respect. You may not respect the person, but you ought to respect the position. It's like in the military today. There's a salute. You salute the uniformed official, despite what you think about them. You respect the office, the chain of command. And even today, in Asian and British cultures, there's bowing going on. It's a way to show honor. So I don't think that's the issue. Here's what I think is going on, and we've got to dive a little bit into the text. Twice in Esther, chapter 3, Haman is identified as the Agagite, okay? That's his, the moniker that gets attached to him in verse 1 and verse 10, which we will see. That means he's a descendant of King Agag. Now, people even dispute that because some commentators say he really wasn't a descendant. Agag just kind of symbolized opposition to the Jews. Therefore, they give that moniker to, uh, to Haman. I think he is. I think he is, and I, I'm going to try to show you how this plays into the text and why it's so important. But all throughout Esther, Haman is introduced this way. This, this name is attached to him, the, the fact that he's an Agagite. Esther 8.3, the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Two verses later, just two verses later, same terminology, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by 
Haman the Agagite. Uh, Esther 9.24, For Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. I think there's great significance in this. I don't think the Bible provides extraneous information that is not helpful. And I think there's a reason for this. So what does it mean? You know, how, why is this important for Haman to be identified in this manner? King Agag was the king of the Amalekites. This goes back to a long history between the Israelites and the Amalekites, a long-standing feud between them that goes back to the Exodus. So I'm going to go into 1 Samuel 15 where it recounts that. We're going to spend some time here because it's so very important. We're at a pivotal point in the story here of Esther. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, we'll have the verses on the screen if you want to just stay in Esther. Verse 1 says, And Samuel, that would be the prophet, said to Saul, the king at the time, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. It's a message from God. This is what prophets do. They speak for God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek did, uh, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. That's Exodus 17. Verse 3, now go and strike Amalek, the nation, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Pause. I want you to reflect upon verse 3. It's in our Bible. And we must deal with it. You know, I'm not going to get graphic here. I'm just going to simply put the pieces on the table and I'll let you put it all together. We have men, women, children, infants, swords, and a command from God to destroy. I just want to let you kind of look at that and consider it. Now, I believe that it means exactly what it says. There will be some Bible scholars out there that will jump through a number of hoops using obscure hermeneutical lenses to get you to say, that's not what it means. I believe the plain reading is the plain meaning. But we must know these passages exist. We ought not be ignorant and uninformed. I mean, if we're trusting in Jesus that he died on the cross for our sins, by the mean, that, that would be the means of our salvation, and we're trusting in that, the same book contains 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. And we ought not conveniently skip over these because they're hard. I'm not going to try to avert your attention here. On the contrary, I'm telling you, pause, look at it. And, and, and I, I want you to see it. But I won't leave you there. If this is a struggle, we want to help. I'll give you two forms of help that we offer if this is the kind of thing that you struggle with as you are trying to understand, especially the Old Testament. I lead a group on Sunday mornings called E3. It's not happening right now because I'm up here. It would, happen right, it would be happening right now downstairs. And we deal with this kind of stuff. We deal with the objections that, that come our way, objections to the Christian worldview. We're currently dealing with the problem of evil and suffering. And we deal with, you know, the, the command to destroy the Amalekites. 
And we do it for a couple of reasons. I'm of the view that I, I think many people, we want to share our faith. We want to get out there. We want to share the gospel. And we want to do that biblically, you know, using the Bible. But some people, I think, in their mind are like, yeah, no, my luck, I'm going to roll up on somebody who's going to bring this objection, and I don't know what to say. Well, then the group downstairs, E3, might be for you. The first E stands for equip. Equip, engage, evangelize. So I don't see this as self-serving at all. Uh, I'm here to serve you. We provide this forum, this group, to deal with the hard things that we're going to face in this ever-increasing hostile to Christianity world that we live in. So we need this group. Here's another, another uh, option for you. Whoop. I have a book right here that's from our library, and it's called, Is God a Moral Monster? Quite a title, right, by Paul Copan. Making Sense of the Old Testament God. This is in our library. Great help. Three chapters de devoted to this very issue that we're talking about. Resources. The answers are there if you want them. Let's get back to the text, though. But we need to know that going forward here because we're going to stay in 1 Samuel 15. Look at verse 7 with me. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Saul does not obey God. Verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. Did he? And Samuel said, What then is this, the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? If this wasn't so dramatic, it would be comedic. You know, Saul's like, I did everything I was supposed to do. Meanwhile, in the background, bah! You know, Samuel's like, uh, care to explain that? Watch what Saul does. Saul said, uh, they, they blame-shifting, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Is that what was commanded? Total destruction. Verse 16. And Samuel said to Saul, stop. He's like, just knock it off, Saul, with your self-justification here and try to blame shift. Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I mean, he's just clinging to that. He's just not getting it. 
I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted to the Amalekites, Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. It's not me, Samuel. It's the people. And Samuel said, Has the Lord, has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than that of the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul didn't get the job done. He didn't. He disobeyed God. Watch what Samuel does. Verse 32. And Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and Agag came to him cheerfully. Interesting translation there. Some translations don't render it that way at all. It conjures up bizarre images. And then Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Like he's feeling pretty confident. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Which is some ancient gangster stuff that you say before you're about to kill somebody. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Samuel says, you want a job done right? You got to do it yourself. And Samuel succeeded in obeying the Lord's command where Saul had failed. This is all background information. Background to Esther to explain this longstanding feud between the Jews and the Amalekites. And Haman is introduced as a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. How was Mordecai introduced? Last chapter, remember? Esther 2.5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Mordecai is a descendant of Kish. Kish is Saul's dad. So, so Haman is in the family line of Agag. Mordecai is in the family line of Saul. And this is the backdrop that we need to understand what's going on between this Haman and Mordecai rivalry. This has tremendous explanatory power as to why Mordecai won't bow down. And also while Haman, why, why Haman has this blatant overreaction to it. Let's pick it up in verse 5, chapter 3, going back to... Esther, Esther 3. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. See, there's two things going on here. One, Mordecai represents to Haman the Israelites. The, he, rep, he represents all of, of Judaism, basically, because he represents this long-standing feud between the Jews and the Amalekites. That's number one. The second thing going on is Haman's massive ego. I mean, this guy has got an ego that is off 
the charts. He's a total me monster. You know what a me monster is, right? If you're, if you're ever talking to somebody and you know, they say things like, well, enough about me. What do you think about me? That's a me monster. That's, that's the way Haman would talk, I imagine. All about self. One man doesn't bow down. He wants to exterminate an entire people group. You got to have an ego that is just off the charts. So the question becomes is how many people are in view here? If you're going to take out an entire people group, a couple hundred, a few thousand, a couple million? The story is so old, historians kind of you know, go in different areas, but many, many of them say it's up to 15 million Jews. If came to fulfillment, would make the heinous, wicked acts of Hitler make him look like a petty thug if this came to fruition. That's, that's the, I want you to feel the gravity of what's going on here, and it's all being fueled through Haman's massive ego in this longstanding feud. So here's how Haman's going to carry it out. Verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So Haman gathers his crew together, and they throw some dice. That's what's going on here. Literally, to cast lots means to throw dice. It's this term purr, which is like these clay cubes, had characters and dots on them, looking similar to something we would call today as, as dice. And so they're throwing the dice to figure out the best day to carry out this wicked act. This is divination, forbidden by God. Because you know what they're doing? They're asking the gods, the gods out there, what's the best course of action? Now, the Israelites, the people of God cast lots too, but when they do it, they're doing it and they're demonstrating a trust in God. They're, they're, they're asking for guidance from him to, to have him lead them in a certain direction. That's not what Haman's doing here. Haman is an unbeliever and what he's doing is extremely dangerous. Haman would be like someone today who says, I'm spiritual. Haman's not an atheist. He believes in a higher power out there. But people say, I'm spiritual. So, say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm not an atheist either. I believe in a higher power. And they're right. There's lots of higher powers out there, like Satan, like a whole demonic realm, like cosmic forces and powers and principalities, unclean spirits that you want nothing to do with. But that's what Haman's engaged in here. Again, he's like, I'm spiritual, which I think when people say that today is code for, I want to maintain some level of relationship with the God of my own understanding, the God I've created in my image, but I don't want the moral accountability that comes along with it. I'm spiritual. My God is a lot like me. He's cool with whatever I do. I mean, what a coincidence, right? I mean, your God and you might just be one and the same, which is idolatry. And so this, this, this should be a word of warning to our friends, right, who say, well, you're religious. I mean, you know you're religious, right? You're in church today, right? 
That's what they would say. You know, I'm, I'm the most religious cat up in here, right? I mean, I'm praying, reading scripture, right? But people who are spiritual, they might just be, be influenced by a demon leading them straight to eternal destruction. It's very common today to hear that. And that's what Haman thinks. Haman thinks he's tapping into this spiritual realm that he knows nothing of, and he's looking for a lucky day. What's the lucky day to do all this, to carry out this wicked hatred he has for the Jewish people? But what Haman doesn't know is that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And we're going to see that here. So Haman goes to the king. All right, so he's got to begin to carry this out. Got the date. Got to go to the king. Need some authority here. Verse 8. So Haman, then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people group scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. This is a master at work here. This, Haman could lead a master class on how to get someone to do what you want them to do through lying and persuasion. If there was a textbook, this would be an illustration in it. Here's how you do it. Step one, start out with some vague language, right? When you want to lie, using vague language is really helpful. And I know that from experience. People can't pin you down on anything because you're so vague. He uses this vague language, and he begins with something that's true. There's a certain people, just, just certain people, you know, no name for them, certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Very true, very true. Start out with a little truth. Now mix in a partial truth. Their laws are different from those of every other people. Okay. And they do not keep the king's laws, so it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Hold the phone, Haman. All right? This is a veiled reference to whom? Mordecai. The one guy who's not bowing to Haman. And he's, he has this unwarranted extrapolation that extends to the entire people group of which he has no justification for. The Jews in Persia, history tells us, very law-abiding citizens. Good people that obeyed the law of the land, right? Good in the eyes of the government because they did pretty much what they were told. So that is not right, what he just said there. But we ought not let the facts get in the way of Haman's axe grinding because he's got a lot of grinding to do here. So what Haman wants to do is he wants to paint the picture that these people pose a tremendous threat. They're different. That's number one. They're di we, we, you don't like people that are different than you, right? They're different. I mean, that's what Haman says to, to the king. They're different. They're difficult. They don't obey you, king. And they're dangerous. You better watch out. Something must need to be done with these people because it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Um, Haman, the only reason you're able to have this conversation with the king 
in the fact that he's not dead yet is because one of the people that are part of this nebulous group that you're describing actually saved his life. So this is just not true. Manipulation continues. Now that you've painted this picture of, you know, eminent uh, danger, widespread threat, you need to go for it. Make your appeal, but front load it with a little bit of, you know, respect and honor. If it please the king, give him a head nod, right? If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. But now quickly chase that with some cash to help him swallow it down. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Textbook manipulation. Class dismissed. I like one commentator, he said this. He said, Haman's speech is a rhetorical masterpiece, as subtle in its construction as it is malevolent in its intent. So how does the king respond? So the king took off his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. The king gives up his signet ring, which is the symbol of the authority. It's the authority Haman needs to carry this out. It's just that easy. Now picture this conversation. Here's how I see it. Haman approaches the king. King's in his throne room, seated on the throne. He's kind of laying there like sideways with his legs over the arm of the throne. He's reading the paper. And Haman comes in with this uh, carefully constructed speech. And I see a Ahasuerus just like, uh-huh, yeah, oh, bad people, yep. Yeah, we don't know who they are, but okay, they're bad. Uh, something has to be done. Oh, okay, yeah, oh, they're a problem? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, I don't like problems because uh, problems get in the way of my drinking and my uh, carousing with my harem. So here's my ring. Go ahead and take care of them. Just that casual. Notice something, though. Go back to chapter 2. There's a plot. There's a plot there against whose life? The kings. The kings. And you know what the text says? There was an investigation. Back then, the king's like, oh, somebody wants to kill me? Oh, we're getting to the bottom of this. You better believe it. You find out who these people are, and once you do, hang them on the gallows. Very different reaction. But here... There's a plot to kill some 15 million people, and he's like, yeah, okay, go ahead, and I'll give you the power to carry it out. Let's finish the the section here. Verses 12 through 15. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governor's over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language, making every accommodation here. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, 
and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Take note here of the timeline. The edict is issued on the 13th day of the first month. Verse 7 tells us that's the month of Nisan. And there's great significance of when this edict comes down. It's the day before the Passover. I don't think that's by accident. Haman's designing this. You're getting ready to celebrate your little feast and your, you know, God delivering you stuff. You're all going to die. He sends it out the day before. And, it, and it, the timing is particularly cruel for that reason, but also the day that it's supposed to actually happen, 11 months later. What does Haman want to do here? He wants them to sit in it. He wants them to just in, wait in agony for this dreaded day. You see his hatred coming through here. But probably most in the area of the language that he uses. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Notice the unnecessary repetition. If you say destroy, do you really need the word kill? And if you say destroy and kill, do you need to follow that with annihilate? I mean, I mean, is he not, you, 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 you can read, you can feel the hatred coming through in this letter. I mean, why stop there? I mean, what, what, decimate, eliminate, eradicate, exterminate, obliterate. I mean, come on, Haman, you're kind of an underachiever. You could have kept going. These stacking of verbs, though, in, Asian, or in, in Persian documents, it, they were meant to signify one thing, and you know what it is. Utter and total thoroughness. Be thorough. Make it complete. Not to mention the language he says about all Jews. He could have just said all Jews, but he's like, no, 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 I need to be, let me, in case you don't know what all Jews means, here's what it means. Men, women, young and old, in a single day. That's who's to be killed. This is a slaughtering of epic proportions. We need to feel the weight of this. And so this terrifying command is issued, and then Haman and King Ahasuerus sit down to drink. In the streets of Persia, there's turmoil. There's people in confusion. They're, they're stressed out. Chaos in the streets. Meanwhile, they are in the palace Clinking glasses, having a cocktail. And that's how chapter 2 ends. Or chapter 3. Where are we in? Chapter 3, right? Yeah. And I'm going to leave it right there. I'm, I'm going to let the story unfold. I don't know about you. I'm loving coming in each week, like here in the next installment. So, I mean, you can go home and read Esther and figure it out. You know, and we showed the Bible Project video, so you probably know. But, you know, going home reading Esther is not a bad idea. 
What are you going to watch? Flag football? I mean, who's watching that, right? But yeah, let's, let, let's sit in it for a week and see how this, because this is a pivotal point. And everything in chapter four and following just is, is the playing out of what's happening here in chapter three. So what can we learn today from this, this ancient story? I mean, let's spin it forward, right, to today. Because time's running short, let me give you a single point. And the point is this. I think we have a tendency to get a little bit uppity when we read about bad people in the Bible. And I've done it right here. I'm like, Haman is a bad dude. This guy's wicked. But we ought not offer up kind of a religious prayer. Lord, I thank you for not making me like this, Haman. Right? Because I would argue that we all have a little bit of Haman inside of us. Pride, ego, conceit, right? Anger when we don't get our way. I think we might be a little bit more like Haman than we care to admit. I'll put myself out there, see if you can relate. Uh, there's somebody who lives in my house with me. Uh, her name is Alexa, all right? You may know Alexa. Let's say she's, uh, she's an Amazon woman, okay? <laughs> Been with us for a couple years now. And Alexa loves her name, all right? She wants to hear her name. And if you talk to her, you got to use her name. Otherwise, she ignores you. Uh, but something tells me, though, she's listening all the time, <laughs> giving our personal information to the government or China. Forget the spy balloon. I got a spy in my kitchen. So, but I like Alexa. Alexa and I are tight. We are, you know, I love her, actually. You know why? She does whatever I say. I mean, she bows to my will. I get up in the morning. Alexa, what's the forecast for today? Boom, she's got it, right? No, let me fumble through something. No, she tells me. I fell asleep the night before watching the game. Alexa, what's the score of the game? She's got it. And in our home, we have, you know what our Alexa does? She, you may have an Alexa at home yourself. Uh, Alexa turns on the light. And you walk into a room, Alexa, turn on the light. And this is a true story. Yesterday, I walked into Nathan's bedroom, and I said, and the lights were off, and I said, Alexa, turn off the light. You know what she said? Okay. And then it did nothing because the light was already off. She didn't say, what are you, a big dum-dum? I mean, <laughs> you hang around me long enough, I say stupid things like that. It's amazing they let me preach here. <laughs> but then I said, I said, Alexa, turn on the light. And you know what she says? Okay. Your wish is my command. She doesn't ask me any questions. Well, you're only going to be in here for a minute. Do you really need a light on? I mean, is there enough light coming from the window? She does nothing like that. Whatever I say, she does. But about a month ago, Alexa and I got into a big fight. It was dinner time. Nathan and I are eating dinner, and I wanted us to, to hear some music. So like a king, I'm like, Alexa, play us some music while we enjoy our meal from my throne at the kitchen table. And, and she did. She, she played some music, but she played the wrong song. I requested a particular song. She didn't play that song. All right, you know, I can forgive Alexa. You know, I've been shown so much grace. 
I can show her some grace. But here's where things went south. I said, Alexa, stop. And she didn't stop. I'm like, well, she, she must not have heard me. That's, Alexa, stop. She didn't stop. This song that I didn't want playing was blaring through Alexa. And I'm like, how dare you defy me? I've given a command and you're disobeying. This is utter defiance. Don't you know who I am? I even laid hands on, on Alexa. I'm aggressively touching her screen, hitting the volume down button. Nothing worked. And I'm becoming enraged at this point. I'm, I'm filled with fury. I want to destroy her, kill her, and annihilate her. So you know what I did? I reached out in no you know, soft way, pulled the plug on Alexa. And I started talking junk to her. I'm like, I told you to listen to me. I'm holding the coin. You know, I'm talking junk to a screen here. I'm like, you thought you had the power, but I got the power. Don't hear any music anymore from you. Like, all right, this is a true story, by the way. I am embellishing a bit, trying to make a point here. But you might say, well, Mike, all right, that, that is one inanimate object. Haman wants to kill 15 million people. Facts. That's true, but you'd be missing the point. The point is what's going on in here is very similar to what's going on with Haman. He just has more power and more influence, and his pride can wreak way more havoc than my pride can. But it's the same heart, sin and pride and anger when we don't get what we want. It's the same between us. I'm more like Haman than I care to admit. And that's why Jesus came, to give us a new heart. And I believe I have that new heart. But, you know, the old man rises up, right? I mean, you get into that fleshly, things don't go your way. You're not, you're not you know, trusting in the Lord. You're not in step with the Spirit. And you can act ugly like I do. Happens. And so we all not read about Haman and others and look down from our lofty perch with this sense of moral superiority. Because apart from the grace of God, I am Haman. We all have the potential. It exists within us to be just like him. And that's why we need Jesus every day. We need him as much today as when we first met him. So to conclude, think about it like this. The Jews in Persia, why are they there? You've got to go back a little bit. They're ultimately there because of disobedience. Sin and rebellion, rooted in pride, led to disobedience, and they were exiles. They get exiled, and that's why they're there. And so now in chapter 3, they're asking the question, God was faithful back then, will he be faithful to us now? especially in our state of disobedience. It's the eve of Passover, and they hear that they're going to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And they're remembering back to the Exodus and, and when God delivered them from Egypt, and they're wondering, will he still deliver? Will he still come through? Or are we doomed and forsaken? 
And I'm here to remind you, because I think you know this already, but we need constant reminders. God does not change. If he makes a promise to you, he's faithful to keep it. It was true for them back there, and it's true for us today. So when you and I get ugly like Haman, and I'm putting myself out there, you know, we all do it. We need to trust Jesus just as much as when we first came to him for salvation. We need him every single day. And God will be faithful to the promises he has declared. He says, I started a good work in you and I'm going to finish it. So let me leave you with Psalm 100. Verse says, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations, including our own. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Your mercies are new every single day. And I'm not ashamed to stand up here and say, I need your grace and your mercy because I, I falter. I step off that narrow path that you have set me on. And I can, I can act in a way that is unbecoming of a child of yours. But I know if we're honest, I'm not the only one in this place that's like that. And so we must thank you and praise you every single day for the kindness, your loving kindness shown to us through Jesus Christ on the cross. That we should look to you in all things, be led by your spirit, and to demonstrate the fruits of the spirit in our lives and not the works of the flesh. And Lord, you are faithful. If we come to you, if we confess, you're faithful to forgive us. We repent. You're faithful to receive that and bring us back and restore us and give us back the joy of our salvation. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we praise you for that. Thank you, Lord. As we collect our offering here today, Lord, I pray that the funds that are collected are used to proclaim that message, that this world is spinning out of control. There's horrific things happening on a daily basis. Some that make national news and we see viral videos, but some it's just, it's just in, in privacy on our own home and our own neighborhoods. Lord, we need you so desperately. That, that is the solution. Not waiting for some election or some official to get elected to be able to restore where we ever were, whatever place that was. Lord, we need you. We need a revival. And I pray that we use these funds to bring that about. It's ultimately your doing, but that's our heart. That's our intent. Give us wisdom and guidance and good stewardship as we manage these funds. And we ask all this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus Christ.